Um, let me pray for us uh, before we do this. Lord, uh, we just thank you for such a beautiful morning. Um, sun coming in those windows, um, such a reminder uh, even of the beauty and the power of your creation. And uh, Lord, uh, what you're about to do uh, with me and with us uh, in, and in your word, Lord, is really uh, so dependent on your spirit. And uh, we just ask, Father, that uh, you would inhabit this room right now, um, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to understand the truth uh, that you have for us. Um, and we pray that that truth would not just come uh, in knowledge, but it would come in power. Uh, Lord, we hunger for the transcendent, yet we're so powerless to make it happen. So uh, we just ask humbly this morning that you would do that. We love you. In your name, amen. Well, morning. Um, Joel started off last week talking about the Acts Church, and he started talking about it from the, from the perspective of that they were a missional community. And he started off by saying that, <clears throat> why is that? Did we just make that up? Like, we're missional, we have a mission, we're on a mission. Uh, but he said that, the reason we're missional is because we're in a relationship with a missional God, that it is in the very nature of God himself to be on mission. He is missional, and therefore, we as his people, we're missional people. He talked about a lot of different things. He talked about the fact that God has a plan and that God is not a God of chance, that God is an exact God. But the thing, one of the things I took away and the thing that we're going to kind of build on this morning is that the gospel is at the center of the mission. It is the plan. The gospel is the redemptive mission of God to redeem all of creation. Joel said it like this. He said it's the agenda. It's the focus. It's the lens by which we, we put on and we look at all of life, all of the mission is looked at through this lens of the gospel. And for our purposes this morning... And really in looking at this chapter in Acts 2, um, it is the source of the power of the redemptive mission. That power accompanies God's mission. Go to Acts 2. If you've got a Bible. Uh, we're just going to look at the first 13 verses. Um, there's a lot in Acts 2. As I kind of prepared this week, I got thoroughly overwhelmed by uh, the amount that was here. So we're just going to kind of uh, look at the first 13, 13 verses. And I'm going to read you a lyric, as you guys are turning that, by Patty Griffin. She wrote a song called Mad Mission. And I don't know what Patty meant by this song. I would love to have sat down with her and talked through it. Uh, it reeks of the gospel. Um, but the chorus in particular, I think, is, is good for us to look at this morning as we approach the Acts 2 folks. She says, It's a mad mission under difficult conditions. Not everybody makes it to the loving cup. I would love to know if she thinks what I think about the loving cup. It's a mad mission, but I got the ambition. Mad, mad mission. Sign me up. 
mission he has us on, it looks like madness to the world outside of the church. It is truly a mad mission. And what we're going to talk about this morning is really, in some ways, her statement, but I've got the ambition. Do you have the ambition? Is it in you? Do you have the ambition for the mission? I think her comment about the loving cup tells a lot. So let's read Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, this is verse 1, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, so the sound, this power that occurred, it was something that was powerful enough to actually attract a crowd, an explosion, something significant. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears him or hears them in his own native language? So these guys were communicating something and they were communicating it in the tongues of all the people. It says every God-fearing Jew from every nation under heaven was gathered in Jerusalem. And I won't go through the list in nine because I'll absolutely butcher saying biblical words. <laughs> But uh, it gives a list of where these folks are from. And then at the end there in 11, it says, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them, and this is what they were declaring, the wonders of God in our own tongues. Declaring the wonders of God in the language of all these different tribes and nations. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What? in the world is going on. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Ah, they're drunk. Crazy drunk Jew guys. Nine in the morning, drunk. So what does it mean? Were they drunk? Maybe so. Maybe not on the right thing or on the thing that these people assumed. But it's interesting that he compares it to that. The people thought that these guys were actually drunk. You see, Acts 2, what we've just read here, it's a powerful scene. And we're going to talk for a few minutes this morning about power. We long to experience something like this. It's why you go to a rock show. You want to be caught up in something transcendent. I want to experience something larger than myself. We have a desire for power. And we can read a lot of different places in Scripture, and probably many of you have read a lot of different places in Scripture, and said, okay, I I can read, I know, I can read the creation account, and I know God is powerful. But in all honesty, reading it just isn't enough. Tom Snyder has a song, Todd Snyder has a song, that says, I don't know, but I've been told. (laughs) I don't know, but I've been told. I don't want to just know. I don't want to just be told. I want to have an experience of what I know. I want to have an experience of what I've been told. We long for it. 
Kenneth Scott Latourette, he's a Yale University historian, talks about the early church in the Acts. He says this, he says, It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Without it, the future course of the religion is inexplicable. That something happened in the Acts community that if it had not occurred, the future course, the things that we see happen throughout Paul's life, all the way up until today, the future course of what we say and what we do and what we believe would be inexplicable if that unparalleled release of energy at Pentecost had not happened. Joe Reedy is a guy I went to high school with. Carly always makes fun of me because I remember everyone's name first and last. Um, Joe was mean as the day is long, and he was a guy that you wanted on your side when you got into a fight. I was in a gas station one time, and Joe came in, and he had blood all over his shirt, all over his hands. He looked like he had just been to a slaughterhouse or something. And I said, Joe, what's going on? He said, oh, I got in a fight with my brother. I'm thinking, what does your brother look like (laughs) if you're covered in his blood? And he was that kind of a guy. I mean, just ornery and powerful. And uh, he wasn't really that big, in all honesty. But man, he was mean. And Joe did a lot of things uh, that demonstrated power. He drove an IROC Z Camaro with the T-tops, which explains some things about how old I am, one, and two, that I grew up in a relatively rural area um, where an IROC Z would have been a very coveted vehicle. But he also uh, had a motorcycle, 600 CBR. That's like a lean-over sport bike. And um, Joe, he didn't know how to drive his car or ride his motorcycle except wide open. And uh, it was quite the thing when Joe would leave high school uh, in the afternoons, a day like today. Joe would get on his bike, and the girls would kind of watch, and then Joe would race off, and he'd pull onto this. We had this long straightaway right out of high school, and he would just scream through the gears. I mean, scream. I remember the day Joe asked me, and Joe and I were good friends, Hey, man, you want to ride the bike? Yes, I do. He was asking if I wanted to ride on the back, which is a little odd. Uh, I don't think I probably should have driven it in hindsight. So I agreed to get on the back of the bike. And I remember getting on the bike, and I remember being at the turn to go out. And I was grabbing the little handles on the bottom of the seat. And he looked over his shoulder, as only Joe Reedy could do, and says, Oh, no, you need to hang on to me. Which, again, felt a little weird. (laughs) But needless to say, I wrapped my arms around Joe Reedy and gone. 90 miles an hour, under three seconds, just flying. I remember we were going so fast, it was quiet. Like breaking sound barriers, it felt like. (laughs) Passing cars, 10 at a time. And I remember the second thing Joe said to me on the bike as the engine was humming, was hang on again. And he went through the rest of the gears, and we went from 90 to about 130. Now I'm in flip-flops, shorts, no helmet. And we're screaming at 130 miles down one of the straightest Indiana corn road, cornfield roads you've ever known, blazing by cars, squealing, um, having a good time. 
Uh, I was actually pretty terrified. I remember looking out from behind Joe, and my contacts blew off of my eyes. <laughs> so that gives you an indication of the speed with which we were moving. I remember when I got home, I had like a wall forehead cowlick hairdo. I had short hair at the time as well. And uh, I remember seeing my dad's face. My dad was in the front yard. I don't even know what he was doing. It really doesn't matter what he was doing. What matters was the look he gave me, and that look was not, I am happy to see you. That look was, what are you doing on the back of that motorcycle and flip-flops? Now, I would not endorse anybody going and doing this, but I moved from a knowledge of watching Joe Reedy ride his motorcycle to an experience that was unparalleled. I understood firsthand the power of being on that bike. And it's an experience I could have never had had I not gotten on the back of it. Well, it's, it's apropos. It fits with what we're talking about this morning because the missional community that God is calling you and I to be, we don't just want an experience of power. We need it. It's absolutely essential for us to experience the power of God to be the missional community of God. 1 Corinthians 4.20 And you guys can write these down. If not, I'll post them on the web. Um, 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but it's a matter of power. Matthew 11.12 says it this way, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. The advancement of the kingdom, God's mission, is a matter of power. And the power is not inside of us. It does not lie within us without him. Well, two questions come up when I start thinking about this power issue with God. First thing is this. Tell me that there is more to life than this than what I'm experiencing. Tell me that there's more than coming here on Sunday morning and being a part of a group and volunteering in some things and doing my job and paying my bills and trying to be a good husband and a good man. Tell me there's something more transcendent than all of this. Second Corinthians talks about the fact that we groan for that because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I ache because I know something but I can't put my finger on it. I feel it, but I don't know what to do with it. It's a desire to experience something powerful, something transcendent. And the second thing, and this follows very closely on the heels of that, tell me that there's something more. Tell me that this life that you're calling me to, this missional life, isn't dependent on the power that I bring to the table. Please tell me that what you're calling me to doesn't depend on me. Because if it does, brothers, sisters, we are in trouble. Capital T, trouble. Let me tell you how in trouble I am. Luke 6, Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, and he says it like this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. He goes on to talk about the fact that we're not just called to love those who love us. We're called to love those people that would even persecute us, that we would even consider enemies. You know what's ironic about this is when Jesus says it, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What good is that? 
I don't even do that well. I don't love my wife well. I need outside help to love the people who are my best friends. Do you understand the ethic that he's introducing here? He's saying, I'm not just calling you to love the people that love you. I'm calling you to love the people that you absolutely struggle with every bit of yourself to even acknowledge. Do you understand the kind of power we're in need of? If I can't even love my own wife well, I'm in trouble with a capital T if this is all about me and my power. Well, the first thing is this, and we can't move any further than this. And I know I've kind of said it in some ways, but I'll just say it directly. The power we need is outside of us. If you do not believe that, then let's just stop and time out. The power that you and I need to live and be the missional community that God is calling us to be, it is outside of us. We live in a self-help, look inside yourself, just tweak things, pull yourself up by your bootstraps world. This is something wholly different. We need outside help. Well, that's causes quite a bit of tension for me. I got problems with that. You see, because I, I live my life trying to need nothing outside of myself to do the life that I believe God's calling me to. That makes me needy and dependent. Ugh, needy. I don't want to be needy. Needy people, people don't like needy people. Dependent? Everything in my flesh shuns those kind of terms. Needy and dependent. Like a rock. I'm like a Ford truck, man. I don't need anything. I chew leather for snacks. We got a problem with that. That's a real serious problem. If we all would be honest, we are spending most of our lives trying to not need anything outside of ourselves. And here's where it gets really crazy. If I need something outside myself, then I can't take the credit. Ooh, glory alert. Wah, wah, wah. The Titanic is sinking. We are absolutely in love with ourselves. I'm in love with being praised. I'm in love with affection. I need someone to affirm my existence. I need glory. You see, this is dealing a death blow to pride. An absolute fatal strike. And to be the missional community that God's calling us to be, that is absolutely necessary. He's got to wound us. He's got to kill that part of us. And He's got to do something on our behalf. Let's talk for a second about not needing anything. This is kind of a fun one to to play with a little bit. I don't need anything outside of myself. Do you know what drives that? What fuels it? Because it's easy to say, oh, culture and society, and you know, we live in you know this kind of educate yourself so that to nth degree. I mean, you, can you do anything in the world without a doctorate anymore? Like, oh, you got a degree from college. Sorry, you need to get your master's, and really, you need to get your doctorate. I mean, I don't know what they're going to invent after the doctorate. I guess the whole idea is you're just in school your whole life, and then you never do anything, but. Uh, you know, it's it's really the truth. It's this kind of we'll educate ourselves to the point where we we we're self-sufficient. But there's more than that, and I'd love to look at something that I believe is actually underneath it. 
What drives this? I don't need anything outside myself. And I believe it's the law. The giving of the law to the Israelites. The giving of the law to the people of God in Exodus 19 through 32. God gives the law to Moses and to Israel. And he gives them quite a list, y'all. It's a mad mission. (laughs) Difficult conditions. What I'm calling you to, you are not going to probably be able to do. If you read 19 through 32 and looked at the, the detail with which we see going on in the Mosaic Law, it's astounding. It buckles you. It causes you to take inventory and you realize, I'm hopeless. I'm powerless. I don't have the power to do this. But we misunderstand that. Because you and I have an experience. We have an understanding that they didn't have at this time. We have Christ We see what's been accomplished for us in the work on the cross. But it's our misunderstanding of the law that keeps us in this posture of, I don't need anything. I don't need anything outside of myself. We misunderstand the law for us, for you and me today. Because Christ did something to the law, y'all. Let's look at Romans 5, 20 through 21. It says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wait a second. I thought you said that the law was given to Moses and to the Israelites to follow. This is what you're supposed to do. Follow these things. You will be my people and I will be your God. But Paul is saying no, no, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. So that sin might increase? What? Paul's on to something here, and it's absolutely essential that you and I understand it this morning. I thought the law was given for us to follow. No, it was given to increase something. It was given to increase our understanding of our need of outside help. That's what happens when I come face to face with my sin. I'm humbled. I realize how dependent I am. Charles Spurgeon would say, poor dependent pensioner on the grace of God. The law was given that we would understand our desperate need for outside help. Romans 8 says it like this, what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. What the law was powerless to do? There was no power in the law because the law was a list. Why the law was powerless is because you and I are powerless to follow it. I don't have it in me to do this. It was weakened by the sinful nature. I was weakened by the sinful nature. We were weakened by the sinful nature. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Romans 10, 4 says it like this. Christ is the end of the law. The end of it. So that there may be a righteousness for everyone who believes. Well, how did Christ end the law? And this is important for us to understand. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to get rid of them. He didn't end it by getting rid of it. I've come to abolish them. Or not to abolish them, but to fulfill it. I came to do to be the power that you could not be, to fulfill the law that you could not fulfill. The law was simply a mirror to drive you to your understanding 
to your need of outside help in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say it. He can be needy, y'all. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Paul was on to something critical here. There was no shame in being needy. There was no shame in being dependent. He understood we need the outside help. In fact, it was the access point. It was stepping into the power. That's the first step. So if the mission is no longer about my power and ability to make things right with God, because that's not what we're doing here this morning. If that's why you're here this morning, then let's talk about that. We're not here to try to make things right between God and I. That's been accomplished clearly by what Christ has done for you and for me. So if he's accomplished that on our our behalf and things are right now, we're justified before God, then what are we doing here? If the mission was about keeping the law and then we realized it wasn't about keeping the law because we couldn't keep the law, then what is the mission about? Well, Matthew 28, we get a little inkling, a little idea of what the Lord is calling the first apostles to, the first official, quote-unquote, mission of this new community. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, stage up. Stage right, stage left. Whew, ascends into heaven. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey what I've commanded you. Hey, and by the way, I'll be with you. Hey, wait a sec. What is he talking about? What is he saying when he's saying, Surely I will be with you to the very end of the age? Luke 24, 48-49, he says, Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So this is where they were at, hanging out in Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So they weren't just hanging out in Jerusalem. Do you understand the lunacy of hanging out in Jerusalem after what has just happened? If you were associated with Jesus, when I take a good hard look at myself, I, I honestly think I probably would have fled. I would have been the one running the opposite direction. Ooh, this didn't go down the way I thought it was going to. I thought he was getting trumpets and armies and nation of Israel reestablished. What's going on here? The disciples had every reason to want to run, to be afraid. They had been commanded by Jesus, stay in the city. I'm sending something. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. And in Acts 1, he gives a specific definition of that. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. So how do we experience 
the power of the gospel. We've acknowledged the fact that we are dependent. We need outside help. Okay, great. How do I get it? You get drunk. Some of you are saying, yes, finally something I know how to do. Not drunk on alcohol, but hang with me here on the illustration. You get drunk. This is what they were accused of in the early church in Acts. Ah, they're drunk. What were they drunk on? They were drunk on the Holy Spirit. Filled and drunk. Two words used synonymously. In Ephesians 5, 18-19, we see it like this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. To be drunk on something, to be under its control, to be under its power, to be under its influence, to be under its sway. Galatians 5 makes it clear that prior to Christ and prior to the reception of the Holy Spirit, we're drunk on something. We're drunk under the control of the sin nature and its desires. Ultimately, we're drunk on ourselves. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every single person in this room is drunk on something? You're under some kind of control, some kind of power. Maybe you're drunk on fear. I'm absolutely terrified of the future, and it controls everything I do. Maybe you're drunk on your own need to control everything in your life. I actually can do this. I know I know I need outside help, but maybe not this time. I can control it. Soren Kierkegaard said it like this, a life always expresses the result of our dominant thoughts. Whatever dominates you, whatever you're drunk on, whatever has got control over you, that is what your life expresses. So being drunk in the Spirit, being under the control and the influence of the Spirit, this is not just a good idea for being a missional community. It's an essential thing. It's absolutely necessary. Well, let's look at the characteristics of someone who's drunk. I'm sure we can think of many. A couple come to mind. Courage. You ever been around somebody drunk? Liquid courage. That's what they call alcohol some, for some folks. You got a guy slamming his arm down on the bar, challenging every single person in the bar to arm wrestling. Maybe you need to have a few drinks in order to be able to say something to somebody. Oftentimes, what we find is when someone's under the influence of alcohol, they all of a sudden, man, he's kind of meek and quiet, but now he's gregarious and he can challenge and tackle anything. Or how about not just courage, but truth-telling? You ever know somebody who has a few glasses of wine and then all of a sudden the truth starts coming out? I made out with your boyfriend in high school. I'm so sorry. It's okay. That was 26 years ago. You did what? Courage and truth-telling. When we get drunk on the Holy Spirit, that is to say when we begin to experience being under its control, under its influence, both of those two things occur. These are marks of a missional community. Fear dissipates. Courage increases. 
You stay in Jerusalem. You wait for God to act and do something on your behalf that you couldn't do. And we tell the truth boldly. And we do it with humility. We, we can't even get into Peter and the psyche of Peter. But Peter understood something at this point that he didn't understand when he was standing around that barrel fire and denying Jesus. He understood his own need in a way that he never understood it until the resurrection, until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter understood that the men that he was about to speak to, that Joel will speak about next week, that they weren't the ones in need of mercy. He was in need of mercy. He was speaking to them the truth out of that posture. I need the very thing that I'm telling you you need. So we speak. I think this is beautiful in Ephesians 5 where it talks about instead be filled with the Holy Spirit instead of being drunk on wine. It says speak to one another. The next sentence. Be filled with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father of everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 2.11 says that they declared the wonders. Who speaks? Me? Just me? Just here? On Sunday morning? This is an important thing that we grasp what happened at Pentecost. I'm going to read to you the very self-titled book, The Holy Spirit. You need to work with guys like this to work on the artwork because when you pick this up, it's just kind of like, oh. But Sinclair Ferguson really puts this well, talking about what happened at Pentecost and why it's not just the guy who stands up here on Sunday morning, but it's all of us. It says, In the Old Covenant, the typical effect of the Spirit's coming was prophecy with its various modes of production. It was, generally speaking, limited to only a few and almost exclusively to men. Speaking about the prophets. Now, in the New Covenant, which is what you and I live under, the boundaries of the Mosaic economy within which the Spirit had and by and large previously manifested Himself is rendered obsolete. Both sons and daughters prophesy. Young men have visions and old men have dreams. These were, of course, modes of communicating the knowledge of God under the Old Covenant. Now in Christ, the old distinctions are nullified. Now all of the Lord's people possess the knowledge of God, formerly experienced only by the prophets. You and I, all of us in this room, we experience something. A knowledge of God, an understanding of the gospel that only the prophets understood in the entire Old Testament. This is exactly what Moses himself had longed for, although it could have never been experienced under the Mosaic economy. Moses said this, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now this is a reality. We all speak. We all speak words of truth. We all sing songs. We all declare the wonders of God. So we need outside help. We need to be drunk on the Holy Spirit for this to be possible. Now I'm going to talk about how do you stay drunk. How do you stay in that position of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit? And we'll end with this. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says that we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal body. 
we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. What does that mean? Is it a shameful, guilty, heavy, penitent? Got to pay you back now. I know. (laughs) Hello? I know that you did that thing for me on the cross and I'm so grateful for it, Lord, but it's time to pull the bootstraps back up. Time to get busy for Jesus. I got to go sacrifice and prove to you that I deserve what you've done for me. Is that what it means to carry around the death of Jesus? I don't think so. Paul would say in Galatians 4.9 that that mentality, that would be going back to the law. He says it in 4.9, but now that you know God, or rather that you're known by God, how is that you're returning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? Do you wish to be enslaved by the law again? Do you wish to be under that? When I understand what had to be accomplished for me in Christ, the extent of the law, do you understand what that creates? Joy. Absolute, inexplicable bliss. Because I'm not trapped anymore in something I can't do. But I'll move back to it, guys. I have the capacity every single day to move back into those weak and miserable principles. I'd encourage us in this. How we stay dependent on the Holy Spirit. If you spend time in the Word outside of these times together, I'd encourage you this week to spend it in Psalm 51. David wrote this psalm after sleeping with another man's wife and then having him killed to cover it up. David was a man who didn't or wasn't confused about his need for outside help. But he says it like this, and this is how we stay drunk in the Spirit, how we stay dependent. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. David asks, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. All before that, he's saying things like this, Wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be water and stone. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Create in me a pure heart. You understand what he's doing, what he's saying here? He's saying he's coming to full recognition of his absolute depravity and his need of the gospel. To be the man that God's calling me to be, I am so dependent on you, Lord. I need to be restored to the joy of my salvation, and I need to be restored to it often, regularly. To carry around the death of Jesus is to carry around the deepest sense of joy. The deepest sense of gratitude, the deepest sense of freedom. It's only when we do what Thomas Hardy said, if a way to be better there be, it takes, or it lies in taking a full look at the worst. 
It's only in taking a full look at the worst, y'all, that we understand the better way that there is to be dependent on the Lord and on the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 12 says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in John, that well, it's not somewhere out there. Let's go down to the well. When the Holy Spirit comes and makes His home in our hearts, it says "Whoever in John 7, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit. Frederick Buechner, he's an author, brilliant, says it like this. We'll end with this. It is the beast who becomes beautiful, the cowardly lion who becomes brave, the wicked sisters with their big feet, and fancy ways who repent and in the end are forgiven. It is really two impossible things that happen, because happiness is not only inevitable, but it is also endless. Joy happens. This morning, this week, this life, if we are to be the missional community that God is calling us to be, we need outside help. We absolutely are completely and utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. And to stay dependent on the Holy Spirit we have to daily drink from the well of the truth of what He has done for us. The gospel, it is the plan. It is the agenda. There is nothing else without it. God goes so far in His Word to say that everything that we don't do in faith is sin. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is hard. It's a hard word to even say, Lord, um, because so much of myself wants to bucket, wants to fight against it, wants to still believe that maybe I just need to tweak some things and I can get my life under control, that I can experience the power that I long to experience, that I can make it happen on my own. Father, humblest. Lord, give us the grace to take cues from King David, who threw himself at the feet of your mercy. And understood that it wasn't his dependence that disqualified him, but actually qualified him for being a part of the mission. Teach us this truth, Father. Deep, deep experiential truth in our hearts. In your name, amen.